hear from God's word. Um, Graham's going to come forward and read uh, Job chapter 1. Uh, in the Black Bibles you might have received on the way in, it's on page 359. And uh, yeah, Graham will just come forward and then we'll follow on with Luke chapter 22. Okay, as Russell said, it's page 3359 in, in the Pew Bibles. This is from the book of Job. It's uh, the book's named for its main character, a, a righteous man who was very rich, but he lost everything, and uh, in spite of that, he still confessed his love for God. And I'm going to read chapter 1, which is a prologue, which sets the scene. In the land of Uz, there lived a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. He had seven sons and three daughters, and he owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 donkeys, and had a large number of servants. He was the greatest man amongst all the people of the East. His sons used to take turns holding feasts in their homes, and they would invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. When a period of feasting had run its course, Job would send and have them purified. Early in the morning, he would sacrifice a burnt offering for each of them, thinking, perhaps my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. This was Job's regular custom. One day the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. The Lord said to Satan, Where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord, From roaming through the earth and going back and forth in it. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Does Job fear God for nothing? Satan replied. Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You have blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. But stretch out your hand and strike everything he has and he will surely curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, Very well, then everything he has is in your hands. But on the man himself do not lay a finger. Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. One day, when Job's sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house, a messenger came to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys were grazing nearby, and the Sabians attacked and carried them off. They put the servants to the sword, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was speaking, another messenger came and said, The fire of God fell from the sky and burnt up the sheep and the servants, and I'm the only one who escaped to tell you. And while he was speaking, another messenger came and said, The Chaldeans formed three raiding parties and swept down on your camels and carried them off. They put the servants to the sword, and I'm the only one who has escaped to tell you. And while he was speaking, yet another messenger came and said, Your sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house. 
when suddenly a mighty wind swept in from the desert and struck the four corners of the house. It collapsed on them, and they are dead, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. At this, Job got up and tore his robe and shaved his head. Then he fell to the ground in worship and said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. In all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. This is the word of the Lord. The second reading comes from Luke, chapter 22, verses 39 to 46, and that's on page 747. Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives, and his disciples followed him. On reaching the place, he said to them, "'Pray that you will not fall into temptation.' He withdrew about a stone throw beyond them, knelt down and prayed, Father, if you are willing to take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. An angel from heaven appeared to him, strengthened him, and being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. When he rose from prayer and went back to the disciples, He found them asleep, exhausted from sorrow. Why are you sleeping, he asked them. Get up and pray, so that you will not fall into temptation. This is the word of the Lord. Some technical difficulties you'll be on me, like putting a microphone back in the stand, but uh, we'll do our best. Uh, let me add my welcome. It's great that uh, you're able to join us today for what is uh, a very special day, not least Happy Father's Day for those for whom it's relevant, uh, but it's very exciting to more formally welcome you and as part of our church life. Uh, we're going to pick up uh, in Job, as Russ said at the start, we've been working through trying to seek the wise life, uh, and so I'd encourage you flick back there as we've been looking at one book of wisdom a week from the Bible and being reshaped in the image of God. Uh, As well as you're finding your way back there, can I encourage you to keep praying for uh, the outcome of I Heart Curability Week. If if you aren't aware of what that was in the past week, we've invited the community to to partake in an art competition. All the pews had been ripped out until yesterday afternoon, artworks all around Loads of people from our community came into church who wouldn't normally. I had a great chat with a guy who's lived here 40 years and this is the first time he's been in church. We had a good chat uh, about all sorts of things, uh, not least about church life and God. Uh, And so do be praying for the outcome of uh, that week. Uh, But how about I pray that God might speak to us clearly in his word this morning. Our Lord and Father, we thank you for the goodness of your word in uh, even the hard times. Uh, And Father, as we look at the book of Job... Uh, Help us to see the goodness of your commands. Help us to delight in them uh, and reshape us to find comfort in you and build in us a desire to follow after you in everything. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
you, you don't have to look very far to see senseless suffering, do you? Uh, down the road uh, is a man uh, who shared his story with me. Uh, he's lived a life of massive disappointment. Born with a condition that uh, required major surgery from a very young age just so he could go to the toilet. Uh, his mother died when he was about eight or nine. Uh, she was a drug, drug addict. Uh, he was raised by his grandmother who frequently told him just how much she resented him and hated him. Now, suffering's all around, isn't it? Now, people are not dealt an even hand. Uh, the hand this guy was dealt has meant that he is deeply, deeply angry with God. And he's not alone. Uh, for many people, they see suffering, uh, senseless suffering, where, and it just makes them either very angry with God or simply disregard the possibility that God might be there. And for many of our friends who, who wrestle with that kind of question, uh, and for many of us perhaps, it isn't just about playing with philosophical ideas, it's about life. You know, Pakistan, uh, New Zealand, they're, they're again, event, events happen and people just, lives are destroyed. You know, even today, like it's Father's Day, day of celebration, but even that is marred by suffering for so many, those who've lost their fathers, those who pine to be fathers but aren't, those who never knew their fathers, those who uh, knew their fathers and wish they didn't. You know, suffering is the reality of our experience. How do we make sense of it? How do you live wise when agony is so often our experience in our world? How does suffering do anything for you aside from make you rage against God? So I've said time and time again in this series that wisdom is recognising reality and living in accordance with it. And the wise life in Job is realising that suffering actually helps us accept the reality that we are not God. For all the things that we could say about the Bible's insights into suffering, all the things we could learn from Job, there's 42 chapters of it, go and knock yourself out and read it at home this week. Uh, let's just grasp this. Suffering actually helps us understand and accept that we aren't God. That's the wisdom of it. So as we, as we search for wisdom, um, what Job does for us, first of all, is, is make us realise that suffering is order that's been hidden. It's the hiddenness of order. Uh, so Job, we met in chapter 1, he's a good man. Uh, 1 verse 1, I'd love to be introduced this way. He's blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. Now, he was a wealthy man, um, the greatest of his time in, in the East, in verse 3. Uh, and he had a full family life as well. Did you notice, like, he has an abundance of kids who've grown up, but they actually like each other. You know, they're going around each other's houses and partying and, and they, you know, he's got it all. But it all gets torn away from him. You know, if you've, if you've ever lost a job or lost your savings or lost a child, just imagine his grief when they're all taken in one hit. And yet somehow he can say in verse 21, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. So if you read on in Job, chapter 2 ramps it up. He begins to physically suffer. Uh, he suffers to the point that by 3 verse 1, he is cursing the day that he was born. He wished it never happened. And you can understand it, can't you? You know, here is a good man, a man who is blameless, and he has suffered in ways that you know, we all hope would never happen to us. 
Uh, he's lost it all. He's lost wealth and family and health. And as you read on, you discover he's lost respect for people who used to look at him and, and look kindly upon him now, look at him with disdain. He's lost joy. And, and at the worst of that for him as you go through is God is silent and there is no reason. There's 34 chapters of him having conversation with his friends. They're tiring chapters as his friends come, friends in inverted commas, to comfort him. You know, by basically pointing out, uh, you must have done something wrong, so hurry up and repent, because otherwise, how could this happen to you? And, it, and it's a tiring conversation, and it goes round and round and round, and they don't get a resolution, but that's the point. It's meant to wear us out and go, yeah, it is tiring to find those answers, because the answers don't come in the midst of suffering like that. You know, the order is hidden, because there is an order. There is a reason. Uh, in the opening chapter, we find out stuff. We as readers know stuff that Job never finds out. Um, we're told that God has a purpose, but Job doesn't know that. You know, we see this conversation in Job 1 between the Lord and the accuser, Satan. Um, Satan basically says, you know, God, the only reason Job serves you is because it's self-interest. You, you look after him. You know, that if, if Job's life wasn't comfortable, he'd curse you. you know, that is the framework, the meaning, the, the, the order behind Job's suffering. We see it, but he never does. Because the book wants us to understand that's the point, that there is an order, but it's hidden from us in the midst of suffering. You know, even at the close of the book, at the very end, um, as you read on, after all these friends chat and go over and here, go round and round in circles, God speaks, the silence is broken. And when he does, he doesn't explain any of this to Job. He never finds it out. You know, there's this uh, chapter, chapter 28, in the middle of the book, um, it's all about wisdom. It's a beautiful poem about wisdom and how you can search for it. And in fact, you can search all you want, high and low, but true wisdom will never be found. It's only God's to dispense and give. Now, this book is not everything that the Bible has to say about suffering, but what it does say is this, that suffering, the reality of suffering, is the hiddenness of order, that there is a reason why hardship occurs, but try as we might, we just can't access it. We can't know it. I want to say this is actually a great insight for us, a great help in trying to live wise. My way, first of all, means that there's no necessary connection anymore between success and goodness or, or, or suffering and sin. So the, the dangerously rigid connection between you know, those two things, success and goodness uh, and, and suffering and sin, gets broken by the book of Job. You know, we, we mustn't assume that, that those... Uh, who are in hard times are somehow worse than us, that, that you know, people who are suffering in, in earthquakes or, or people who are on welfare or pe- whatever their situation, you know, that somehow they're worse off and have sinned. No, that's not a biblical thinking. That's not Christian thinking. That, that's a Hindu thinking, you know, people paying for their previous sins of a previous life. No, no, there is no rigid connection like that. Yeah, and perhaps um, it's more likely in our circumstance that we might think that you know, the more successful are morally better and, and they're the ones we should copy. Uh, someone in our Connect group gave a, a really helpful insight recently. He was, uh, he was part of a church uh, where, the, the, I suppose, there are a lot of successful people who were members of that church. And they had a, when he was in the, a youth group, a young adult group, they had a, a panel brought together of these successful church members uh, that everyone could learn from them and copy them and... Uh, and he was really helpful and had a great insight in just asking the question, are they really the ones who should be copied? Just because they've achieved success, does that actually mean they're the models of great godliness? 
That's a great insight. It captures the hiddenness of order that Job is all about. There is no tight connection between them. But even more, the wisdom it reveals to us is that there are no trite answers for times of suffering. You know, suffering is real. And when those around us suffer and when you suffer, you know, we're fools to minimise it by trying to pretend we know the reason behind it all. I think we're always awkward around other people's suffering. We don't know what quite to say. And so most of us, well, many of us, fall into the kind of trite words of comfort that, that aren't really comfort because they're just not true. You know, we do the sloppy attempts at empathy, like, oh, you know, I can understand how you're feeling. And, and you don't, actually. No, you've no idea. Or, you know, we, we say, oh, things will get better. Well, they might not. Now, I've heard it at its crassest level, uh, uh, a person saying that your family member died because you didn't have enough faith. You know, the comfort of this, though, is that, that it pulls us out, of course, of, you know, racking ourselves with guilt. Uh, a young Christian man was uh, going through a long period of unemployment, and so he did a lot of soul-searching, wondering, turning in on himself, wondering, is it because I've done something terrible? Is that why I can't get this job? Now, without saying this guy was perfect, he wasn't perfect, but you know, the wise insight Job offers, it's just not that simple. There aren't trite, simple answers like that. Um, that middle section of Job, that 34 chapters of tiring, circular conversation as Job's friends comfort him, you know, their comfort is basically telling him, Job, you've done something wrong, you better repent. Uh, but Job's friends were wrong. You, you can't turn the principle that if you sin, it'll end up you get, you'll suffer into if you suffer, you must have sinned. We can't do that. We mustn't do that. And what a relief that that's not true. Now, this young man didn't have to be racked by guilt. Uh, you know, to us, the, the meaning in hardship can be hidden. You know, the simple answers, though, aren't necessarily right. And don't get me wrong, there's another implication. It doesn't mean we don't know anything. It doesn't mean we, we know nothing. Uh, Job does, throughout the book, cry out. He questions and he screams but he learns in 19 verse 26 that one day he will get to see God in the flesh. He won't get the answers now. Yes, he knows something. He's tapped into something of the truth. There is something of order in life, but you can't know it all and there's not yet an answer. Why does God do this though? How does this help us? How does this make us wiser? Why does he hide the reasons? Well, to help us accept the reality that we're not God. So when God breaks the silence at the climax of Job, uh, chapter 38, skip over there if you've got your Bibles open. Job 38, God speaks, the Lord answered Job out of the storm, the one who has all power. He speaks from that position of power from within the storm and he says, who is this to Job? Who is this who darkens my counsel with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man and I will question you and you will answer me. So when God speaks to Job, it isn't, oh, Job, it's great you've been patient. I'm going to tell you all what was happening. No, no, when he speaks, he questions Job. And, and if you read the chapters, God basically fires question after question uh, to Job to remind him just how little Job is, how small his experience is. You know, Job, were you there when I created the world? Oh, that's right, you weren't. You know, Job, do you make the dawn occur? No, you don't. You know, have you been down to the depths of the sea? Have you been to the heights of the clouds? No, you haven't, have you? 
Now, two chapters of basically questions fire to Job to reduce him down more and more. So in 40 verse 4, Job answers God after this tirade, um, I am unworthy. How can I reply to you? I put my hand over my mouth. I spoke once, but I've no answer. Twice, I'll say no more. And God goes on with another two chapters of pointing out Job's limitations. He hasn't got the point until we get to the very end of the book, chapter 42. Suffering here is not punishment, but it's the best way to make us and Job realize that there is only one God and that Job is not God and that you aren't God and I'm not God and he is not answerable to us. Uh, Graham Goldsworthy tells this lovely story of a a time he was a a chaplain in New York. Um, Some uh, group of children from a a ghetto uh, had come to a shelter where he was a chaplain. Um, He asked a question of them. What would it mean if we could understand everything about God? And a a seven-year-old there uh, piped up with an excellent answer. Wise beyond his years, we'd be God. That's what Job had to learn. And that's the wisdom you and I need to learn. You know, Job questioned God's integrity because he was trying to bind God with his views of justice and his definitions of goodness. But the very fact that he was trying to bind God that way rather than, than letting God's actions shape his understanding of what goodness and justice are, it, it was him forgetting who he was and thinking by accident he was God, that God must answer to him. And the beauty is when he's eventually read it, that realise that the, the final act, the epilogue of Job, is that he gets healed. He gets healed. He's healed by the word of God and accepting it. Uh, he receives back his wealth. Uh, he's blessed again with family. He's been reminded that he is not God. And at that point, when he's eventually accepted it, he's healed. Now, without wanting to sound trite, and uh, I'm entirely aware that for many people this is a really unsatisfying answer to the problem of pain. Uh, But if we want to be wise, we need to accept the truth that Job did. You are not God, I am not God. And that has to shape our life. That's what will lead us into wisdom. First, we need to recognise, acknowledge, be reminded that wisdom begins in humility and faith. See, the thread that's run through all these wisdom books is that true knowledge actually starts in recognising that God has power over us and we have to depend on him. So Job 28, 28, the fear of the Lord, that's wisdom. To shun evil, that's understanding. You know, wisdom starts when, when you're actually humble to the point that you realise God does not owe you an answer. Yeah, our culture's temptation is to think that uh, you know, the onus is on God. He better justify himself. You know, as though um, God is in the dock and we are there as judges over him. You know, and, the, you know, we're nice judges, of course. And if God can give us a really good answer as to why there is poverty and disease and war and famine, then we're willing to listen because we're gracious judges that way. But that position, sadly, is foolish. Uh, and we ourselves, we, we, we need to help our friends and help our neighbours to wrestle with the questions of suffering not from the bench, not from the position of judgment, but where we really stand in the dock, under God. Because as long as we or, or our unbelieving friends insist that God has to satisfy our questions, then we'll never actually experience the healing. Wisdom and healing only come when we're willing to admit that there is, there is only one God and he is free to do as he will. And it is not us 
and he doesn't have to give an account to us. Don't mishear me. I'm, suffering really, really hurts. You know, none of us wish for it. I suspect by this stage of life, most of us have sampled suffering. I reckon until I was 23, I don't think I knew what suffering was, but I've sampled suffering. I suspect most of us here have felt suffering. Don't, don't minimise it. I don't want to pretend it's not. We don't wish for it, but at the same time, when you read Job, you can appreciate its value. You know, there is nothing quite like suffering for no reason that we can see to remind you who is God. Now, just this week, I've been thinking about how uh, rewards for, for the goodness in my life, when things go well, that just makes me more and more self-reliant. Uh, but times of pain and calamity make me trust. I don't, I don't want suffering, but I can appreciate it. It reminds me I'm the creature, not the creator. It also means when you've grasped this, teaches us that we need God to actually bridge the gap between us and him. You know, God is the great God. We are that Pablo. You know, Job longs to ask his questions, but in chapter 9 he realises he actually needs a representative. The gap is too big to come before God. The power imbalance is too obvious. You know, that, that hiddenness of order, the lack of explanation reminds us not only that we're not God, but we actually need help to get close to him. Uh, and the wonder is, of course, that God has bridged that. You know, in the Lord Jesus Christ... Uh, he stepped into our experience. He suffered with us. Uh, Jürgen Moltmann wrote, A God who cannot suffer is poorer than any man, for a God who is incapable of suffering is a being who cannot be involved. He cannot weep, for he has no tears. But the one who cannot suffer cannot love either. And so he's a loveless being. You know, but he wrote that, but goes on to talk about how you know, the true and living God has come and felt suffering with us. You know, for our many friends who deny God because of their feelings of suffering. You know, that if he can't suffer, he's less than God. You know, he's, he's in fact less than us. No, there is an answer. You know, perhaps you've felt it, perhaps you've wondered, you know, how can God speak to me in my pain? He doesn't know what it's like. No, no, he does. He has come in and he's bridged that gap and he has suffered rejection and torment and he's suffered the, the weight of our sins on the cross he suffered that his own heavenly father, the perfect relationship, his heavenly father despised him. He knows what that feels like. He has something to say to my friend down the street. He has bridged the gap. Uh, and in his resurrection, as Job alludes to in 1925, I know my redeemer lives. You know, he has risen and he can represent us to God. The wise life recognizes not only we're we not God, but we 